Hello, hello, and welcome to the Love Doctor podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, I'm answering your questions about oral sex, mental health, and how to tell your partner about your kinks. Also on the show today is part one of my interview with one of my favorite sexual health educators, Jennifer Gibson. But first, today in sex. I am so fortunate to live with my partner. I have someone to share my thoughts and my feelings with and, well, someone to be intimate with, quite honest. And right now, that can be especially important for our overall health and well-being, But what I'm really interested in thinking about is the stress that all of us are feeling in relation to COVID-19 and how that's affecting the overall quality of our relationships. So I found this new study. It's called Love in the Time of COVID Perceived Partner Responsiveness Buffers People from Lower Relationship Quality Associated with COVID-Related Stressors. Okay, so the first part of that article sounds great. Love in the Time of COVID. And then it goes right on to a highly academic thing. Basically, what they talk about in this article is about partner responsiveness. So that's the extent to which people believe their partner actually understands, validates, and cares for them. Now, this study was done by 14 different authors from eight different countries, and I'm just going to lay out the basics for you. We know that stress from COVID-19 can deeply impact our romantic relationships, and that particularly comes from social isolation and not being able to see other people. Uh, financial strain, and also stress. And now pre-COVID-19, I had done a lot of research about social isolation and particularly about older adults and their experiences of overall health if they're not having those intimate relationships with other people. And so it's really interesting that in this pandemic world, when a lot of us are experiencing social isolation, we are getting a bit of a view into what that experience is like too often for our older adults, particularly when they move into long-term care facilities or lose a partner or just find themselves isolated. Now, right now, especially with so much uncertainty about our jobs, uh, when we can next travel to actually even see our family and friends and our loved ones again, and really start doing those things, those normal daily activities without being anxious, I think that our relationships are really suffering from this added stress. But what is really interesting from this study is it shows us that being a responsive and an empathetic partner, that we can really help our relationships stay strong and mitigate some of that stress that we're feeling. Now, I know this doesn't seem like new information because we know that open communication and actually listening to our partners is such a key part of really any relationship. It doesn't have to be a romantic or intimate relationship, but any relationship relies on trusting each other and having that open communication about your thoughts and your feelings. So essentially what it boils down to is we all want to be seen and heard. And if we bring that to our relationships, if we're able to bring that to our partnerships and, you know, whether it's romantic or not, we can actually be healthier and be better prepared to address these feelings of stress. If you're feeling connected to your partner and feeling grounded in your relationship and really seen and heard, then it makes sense that we would feel better to address those stressful situations that we are finding ourselves in, especially right now. I also want to point out that 
physical touch and intimacy, it's a really important part of our health, really at any age. And so I find it really encouraging to see that research such as article like this are being supported even during the pandemic right now. But I'm really curious to know what has been other people's experiences with their partners during the pandemic. I know I've had a much harder time being present in my relationship and really just just being emotionally available and in the room with someone. I think because we are always in the same rooms together. I think it's because I've been dealing with a lot of my own stress and struggles with my mental health that I have been very fortunate. I haven't had to really deal with until this moment. But I find that when I do take the time to breathe and actually sit down with with Levi and speak honestly to him about how I'm feeling and how we're going through this process together, I find that everything does feel a lot more manageable, that we've taken a breath together and we're ready to take a step forward. I would love to hear your stories, though, and if you have any questions, please send a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com. I'll have a link to the research article as well, because a part of this podcast is creating a space where resources are accessible to people, regardless if you are affiliated with an academic association or anything like that. I just think that information needs to be readily available for anyone who wants to access it. So I'll make sure that I have links to everything that I talk about in the show. I'll make sure that those are linked down below. And now let's get into your questions. I'm going to read out a few of the ones that were sent in via email, but I think the best way really is if you're able, send a voice memo because I'd love to hear your voice on the show. Here's the first one. My partner dislikes giving head. Is there any way I can get him to be more into it? Background info. Heterosexual vanilla relationship for five and a half years. I'm a cis female and my partner is a cis male. We haven't done oral in four years and I'm really missing it. I like giving head on occasion, but don't want to do it out of principle because I know it won't be reciprocated. He's okay with that. We've talked about it, and he says that if I ask, he'll do it, but it almost feels like I'm forcing him, which I don't want. And it's also not as enjoyable when a partner isn't into it. He said that he dislikes the smell. I don't have any infections. Checked by a doctor and previous partners loved my smell and taste. He does make sure I always orgasm, so he's not only thinking of himself. I find this quite fascinating because I think there's a lot of things going on at once about why maybe your partner isn't as willing to go down on you. The first thing I'm thinking about is maybe he just doesn't know what to do. You know, like, I'm going to be honest, it can be quite daunting to go down on a partner if you have no idea what's going on. You don't know what they like. You haven't communicated about that. And then you feel like they should be having this incredibly pleasurable experience and you're not getting any cues and you don't know what you're doing. So I think maybe a part of it is, A, does he know what he's doing? It doesn't sound like he's had a lot of practice, at least not with the two of you together. So I think that might be a good thing to just try and and talk about and to help him feel more confident. You know, if, if you know what you like, being able to expressly say, you know, I like circular motions with your tongue or I do want penetration at the same time or not, just to be able to give someone guidelines, but also giving them feedback. So it, when if he does go down there, and hopefully we can find ways for him to do that, that he feels good about, you feel good about, then 
you can kind of give him those vocal cues and to say like, oh, that feels really great or try it this way, you know, and sounds and moans just to make him feel good about what he's doing. What also might be great is making sure that you feel really comfortable with your vulva in front of him. There's a lot of genital shame, especially for people with vulvas. And you having ownership over your own body and your own pleasure is going to be a such a big turn on, but also a way for you to show him what you like and you can give him those specific directions. So maybe it's masturbating in front of him as like a part of your sexual play together. Um, and then him seeing what you like and how you like it done might help him feel more confident in that. What also might be really great is, have you guys 69 That way you both get to go down on each other and it's pleasurable, but you can also be giving each other feedback at the same time. It's a nice introduction because both of you are doing it at the same time. You know, neither of you is in that really vulnerable position of trying to pleasure your partner, but not knowing what to do. The other thing that I would recommend is coconut oil. I've just been reading The Vagina Bible by Dr. Jen Gunter. It's the book to read, people. It is so, so good. What she recommends, and she's great because she talks about it as a medical doctor, which I will say, I am not. I am a doctor of philosophy, not a medical doctor. But Dr. Jen Gunter, she is. And she uses coconut oil on her vulva, and she really enjoys it. It's not for her partner to enjoy while, you know, they go down on her. But it's for her own sense of like pleasure and taking really ownership of her vulva, knowing it, knowing it well. But also, I mean, coconut oil tastes delicious and it's like totally healthy and safe for you to use. So that might be a fun thing to incorporate as well. I'll just talk a little bit more about the vagina Bible because I think it really pertains to the larger issue about this. It sounds like your partner... And it sounds like he suffers from the common misconception about vaginas and vulvas that they're dirty or they're smelly. And this is just not true. Our vulvas have like a natural scent and they have their own little ecosystem that helps keep them clean. And just so you know, like douching and things like that, no, not recommended. I'm reading the Vagina Bible and as a proud vulva owner for 28 years, there are things in that that I did not know. And it feels like a shame to not know something so integral about your body. You talk to most people who have a penis, they know that penis pretty well. It's their best friend. They're always spending time with it. So why don't we do the same with our vulvas and get to know them really well? Now, obviously, you can't force your partner to go down on you. And I don't recommend trying that at all. But I think a big part of it is trying to change the narrative around it. Change the narrative that you would find it so pleasurable. You'd find it so hot that he is going down on you and it makes you really excited for this sexual experience you're having with each other. So instead of him doing you a favor, it's this is a part of our sexual foreplay and repertoire that gets us really excited and builds that pleasure and excitement that you're feeling for each other. There's also a lot of sexual pleasure that can come from giving your partner pleasure, your partner or partners. And if he can see how hot it is that he's going down on you and how much you enjoy that, maybe that'll be the nudge in the right direction of just changing that narrative. Okay, we have another one here that someone sent in and I'm just going to read it out loud. 
I'm 25 and have been dating my boyfriend for five years. In our first six months, I had to get put on SSRI for panic attacks. Uh, just a little sidebar here. SSRI stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake in Inhibitors, which are a type of drugs typically used as an antidepressant. Um, I knew what they were, but I wanted to make sure I actually said it right. So I'm going to say that again. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are a type of drugs typically used as antidepressants. Anyway, back to the question. As I'm sure you know, SSRIs completely destroy your sex drive. Needless to say, we probably have sex six times a year, if that. He's a saint and claims to be okay with it and loves me anyways, but it's a source of embarrassment and shame for me. Do you have any advice? I just don't know what else to do when the drive just isn't there. I feel I can't give him what he deserves from a girlfriend. I think the first thing is that I hope that the SSRI you're on is working uh, for you and your panic attacks, but I'm wondering when your doctor prescribed it, did they talk to you at all about the effects on your sex drive? Because that can be a real issue when the doctors that we talk to who are looking after our health are really focused on just one aspect of our health and not thinking about our sexual and emotional health as a part of that. So I would wonder if I'm not necessarily recommending that you go and try a different type of antidepressant. Obviously, if this is one that works for you and it's really hard to find one that does work for you, then stick with this. But Having that conversation with your doctor to say, these are the side effects, and I want to talk about it in a way that makes me feel better, that doesn't affect my sex drive so much. And I think our medical doctors really, they need to be held accountable for having these conversations because I hear way too often people feeling really embarrassed or stigmatized or shamed for even bringing up sex with their healthcare providers, and that's just a real shame. Along that same thread, I think there is like way too much shame and embarrassment about sex in general. I'm just really sorry that you're feeling that way. I have a brief note that a big part of my own research is looking at social stigma and sexual shame and why we feel these feelings. And there's so many different things that contribute to that. So that can be our socialization, you know, how our parents raised us, where where we were raised, where we were born, what kind of cultural values we hold. But then also, you know, what does society tell us about our bodies and what's appropriate, what's sexy, what's not? If you do want to know, if people are interested in knowing more about sexual shame and kind of the work that I've done to unpack a lot of these different areas that contribute to feelings of sexual shame and what we can do to address these and to combat it, uh, let me know because I'm happy to talk about it more, but... I'm hoping this show can answer the questions that you find interesting, not just a soapbox for me to talk about my research. So the one thing that I'm thinking about is for people with vulvas, sometimes we don't feel desire until after we start fooling around. We're taught that we should have this psychological thing that, oh, I'm feeling desire. And obviously that can happen and it does happen quite often. But sometimes it's not until we're we're cuddling or we're kissing that we have a physical response and feel arousal in our bodies. Of course, I don't want you to force yourself into having sex with your boyfriend. That's not at all what I'm recommending here. But having some intimate moments where you're holding each other or kissing or cuddling, that might actually lead to you feeling more aroused instead of waiting 
for the other way around of waiting for that thought process to happen in your mind of, ooh, I want to have sex, and then pursuing it. So I read this great article, um, The Enduring Enigma of Female Sexual Desire, and it really just talks about how there is a real difference in how females and males are socialized and how, how our bodies react to sexual desire. I'm just going to read to you this little thing from the article that I thought was great. Sex itself can be a trigger for desire and arousal, or a first orgasm might lead to the desire for a second. Often for women, genital physical arousal precedes the psychological experience of desire, whereas in men, desire precedes arousal. So just a way of saying that even though it, it is a lot of the time linked to the SSRI that you're on, it's also about there is a difference in terms of desire and when you're feeling desire. So I think that's just changing the narrative on what do we understand about sex and when we should be wanting it and thinking about our sex drives in a different way. So what might be something that could work is that maybe you're cuddling or kissing and maybe you're not feeling that strong sex drive, but maybe your partner, maybe he's really feeling that he wants to have sex or he wants to he wants to orgasm or to have some sort of pleasure. Could you be holding him while he masturbates, do some sort of mutual masturbation where together you're touching each other, touching yourselves, trying to find ways that you can still be intimate and having this sexual experience together that really maybe if you're not feeling that, you know, you're really needing that release or that orgasm, but maybe he is, finding ways to really assist along that. But also want to say that I really hope that you don't feel too much embarrassment and shame about this because our relationships are about so much more than sex. Of course, sex is a really big component for a lot of people and that sexual expression, but it's not the sum total of a relationship. There have been all sorts of relationships where the sexual tension and compatibility has been amazing and through the roof, but everything else has been really lackluster. So really thinking about if your partner is telling you that he's okay, trust him. But also, if you can find ways to bring him pleasure at the same time, I think that'd be a really great compromise. My only other thought, and depending on how you feel about this, might be a bit controversial, but if you have a low sex drive and you're really not feeling it and that your boyfriend does actually feel like he wants to have sex more often, have you talked about having sex with other people? Have you talked about opening up that part of your relationship? Obviously, that can be a really hard thing to open up talking to your partner about, but there are more and more ways of consensual non-monogamy or polyamory and all of these different things that are really opening up the ideas that we had about traditional monogamy. In some ways, this can take the pressure off of you for being the only form of sexual release that your boyfriend has. Obviously, there are other ways if he wants to masturbate or you hold him while he masturbates, but I think having a conversation in general, I think whether or not people open up their relationships, whether they are monogamous or they are non-monogamous, I think having a conversation about those boundaries of our relationship are really, really important. I just finished reading Esther Perel's State of Affairs and it really opened my eyes to the fact that a lot of the time in our relationships, we don't actually talk about what those boundaries are around infidelity um, until a really big thing has happened, until someone has cheated 
or something like that. And I think that's something that polyamorous and non-monogamous couples and communities are realizing that that honest, clear communication before a really big event can happen can lead to a lot more productive and healthy way of being really honest with ourselves, with our sexual drives, and just opening up the possibilities for new ways of relationships to emerge. Okay, let's take one more question. Hi, Leah. I am a 26-year-old cis straight woman uh, calling you for some advice. I have been in quarantine with my partner now for just over a month, and we've been getting along great, spending lots of quality time together, and I feel like now might be the time to confess to him a kink that I've had for a long time and never shared, uh, just because we're feeling so close right now. But I'm also worried that if this makes him think of me differently or if he's not interested, then this could drive a wedge between our relationship while we're stuck spending all of our time together. What should I do? This is such a great question about kinks. First, I'm really glad that you and your partner are doing well in quarantine together and that you're feeling close and stable right now in your relationship. That's already a huge step towards feeling safe to have a conversation about your kink that you're wanting to explore with them. My advice would be to introduce uh, your kink in a way that's not too vulnerable right off the bat. So that might be by watching some porn together that has your kink involved in it. That way you can create a bit of a safe distance um, so you and your partner can have an honest conversation about that kink and about your interest in it without putting yourself on the line right away. You can kind of gauge your partner's reaction and if they seem to be interested, you could say something like, that looked really hot. Maybe that's something we could explore together. But I also recognize that it can be really scary to share your kinks with a partner. And especially if you got into a relationship, you know, with them thinking that you're only into vanilla sex. There's still a lot of stigma and shame around kinks, but there are way more kinky people in the world than we think. And being honest about it can really open up a whole new level of intimacy in the relationship. And this is like sexy new repertoire you can try out. I think right now, because you're feeling really close to your partner and connect to each other, it might be a good time to take that little bit of a risk and to be vulnerable and to really ease your way into the conversation. I also want you to be aware that they might have a negative reaction right off the bat, but maybe that's not actually how they feel about it. Um, As I said, there's still a lot of stigma around it, and I think we've just been programmed, especially from society, to think that that's not okay and that's not something that I should be interested in. So I think it might be something where you introduce it, ease into the conversation, and then give your partner time to come back to you with it. You know, don't roll it out and then expect that that night you're going to be getting full on into that kink. You know, if, if it goes well, give me a call back. I'd love to hear about how it went. Thank you so much for your questions today. And now my interview with Jennifer Gibson. In part one of our interview that I'm sharing with you today, we talk about our work together, working with older adults and youth and continuing the project that grew out of my doctoral research. 
And we also talk about our role as educators and what does that look like in this COVID-19 world and what does that look like to hold space so we can make sure that more diverse voices are heard and we can actually do our job better to bring education to people and make sure that it actually suits their needs. So good to see you. It's so good to see your face. I know totally your face too. Like I'm like, oh, it's so funny when you see people like you're just like, okay, we're okay. Okay. So my name is Jennifer Gibson. I am the coordinator of community education services with Island Sexual Health, which essentially means that I lead our team of community educators. Mm -hmm. Most people quite honestly, just call me the sex lady. They literally don't remember what my name is. (laughs) And so my job really is to be a resource for people around sexuality and provide them with information that's current, that's factual, that's sex positive, Mm -hmm. that affirms sexuality as a human experience, and that allows them to gather information to define their expression and their experiences in a way that fits for them at that stage in their life. Mm hmm. Well, and I've seen you in action so many times now because we've we've been together for people who are listening to the podcast. We've worked together now for at least f- four years. I yeah. feel like I just approached you and was like, you know, lots of things and I don't and I would love to work with you. I know. Um, and as soon I remember that like so clearly and I was like, and I want to work with you. Like, <laughs> I know. It's, and it's been a, it's been such a cool development in, you know, in what we've been able to achieve, like through different ways of knowing and being. It's fantastic. Absolutely. When well, you know, I came to you with this crazy idea, I'm like, so like, I'm a theater student and I really just, I want to bring these people together and I want to talk about sex, but I want you to be there because I'm I'm not an expert and I just want to make sure that it's as safe as possible. And that was something that we had talked about a lot is how do you, how do you create a safe place to actually have those conversations? Because a lot of time that's your barrier to accessibility is who's in the room and also are you creating a space where people feel like they can actually ask questions. And what I love about your style of education is clearly you have so much, you have such a wealth of knowledge, but you're so easygoing and easy to connect with. And I think that's probably why you've been called the sex lady because people (laughs) feel like they can call you that, right? Like, (laughs) yeah, well, I hope so. You know, and I think, I mean, it is my great privilege to do this job. Like every, mm-hmm. every single day, I feel so lucky to have this job. And it's interesting because, you know, through this pandemic response, of course, our education has stopped in person, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had to transition to an online platform. And, you know, it's funny because being offsite, not being in the office, you sort of develop you know, that's your new normal. And I've just come back into the office after two months. And Mm -hmm. I walked in yesterday and saw our full calendars for February and March on on the door. And my heart literally like, it it skipped a beat. And I had this, this huge sense of like, grief, like, Mm -hmm. like, and I need to be back there with the youth. Like, I just miss them so much, even though I've been, you know, facilitating virtually. It's really interesting. It's it's not that same thing. And I think part of it is what I really try and do when you talked about safety is just create a space where people are where they are mm-hmm. and that we can feel connected because I think that, you know, when we talk about sexuality, like, you know, the, the premise of it is feeling safe and comfortable and accepted and connected to yourself. You know, our virtual life that we have right now is fantastic. And imagine if this was happening when we didn't have these 
assets. Like I can't imagine that. So much more isolated. And what would you fill? Like you'd fill your time with something, I guess, but your access to information would just be so vastly affected. Mm -hmm. But it's really interesting in the in the facilitation that I've done um, since the response online with youth. The youth have been way less engaged Mm. than I think people would expect them to be. Right. And I think, you know, I think a lot of times we have this idea with youth that the digital realm is their world. Like they're so comfortable, they can navigate with it. And, you know, they may be using it within their personal relationships or they're really comfortable with that. But with a stranger talking about something, even if they've met me before, seeing me virtually is bizarre. And I think it, it really challenges conversations about sexuality. Absolutely. I was thinking about you, actually, because last week I was asked by a good friend of mine from university, but we hadn't connected in quite a few years. She was working with a group of youth in foster care. Mm -hmm. And so she asked me, they got a group together of female identified youth and said, oh, we're going to start these Zoom hangouts. So on Monday nights, we're going to talk about different topics. And their first topic was about bodies and healthy sexuality. She's like, hey, do you want to facilitate this conversation? Mm I was so nervous, Jen. <laughs> I just tried to like channel channel my inner sex lady. I was like, okay, right? And so it was um it was interesting though because even in in my very limited experience of just doing that that one Zoom facilitation, right? Like people who you've just met for the first time and you're trying to talk about something that's so vulnerable, I think they're between the ages of like 12 and 16 and it was hard. And we did this thing we called like a hot seat where they could ask any question. And at first, it's kind of fun. You just get to know each other. One of the yeah. first questions they asked me is, so are you pro-choice or are you pro-life? And I was like, wow, I mean, we're going to okay. we're going to start with it. And so it it was a really great challenge for me, because normally when I'm in a room with people, you can kind of see their reactions and you yes. can you know, you can see, oh, someone has a burning question over there and you can mm-hmm. kind of facilitate that when yeah. it's online and they can choose not to have their, their video on. The like, black screen. Oh, and you're like, am I speaking into a void? <laughs> I know. Yeah. It, and, you know, and that respecting that space of like engagement, like the black screen, not interpreting it as disengaged. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's so interesting, like, because when you can see people's faces and you, and especially with you, with your theater, I mean, so much of, of communication is reading people's body languages mm-hmm. and expressing yourself through that and like, just relax, you know, relax into it. And I mean, I think what I do what I hope I do anyway, and what I intend to do with education is um, just role model that it like, it's okay to be wherever you're at with this. Mm-hmm. And if it's not a place that feels comfortable for you, are there resources that we can help you get to a place where you're more comfortable, right? Absolutely. And, and permission, like you can ask anything, like there is nothing. And I often say that, like when I go in and I introduce myself and One of the things that I often say is, and because I often get introduced as an expert, which Mm. I know is done intentionally, like by the person who's wanting to recognize my experience and recognize what I bring to the room. But for me, it kind of crushes me a bit because I'm Mm. like, I'm an expert maybe on my own stuff on a good day. Like, but but, you know, those are even few and far between. And I have a level of expertise because of where I work and the knowledge that I've been privileged enough to collect and gather and share from, you know, with other people. But 
I just really see my role as like, you know, just kind of a, a guide and guiding mm-hmm. people to their best knowledge and their best knowledge of themselves. And so I often say like, when they say that, I'm like, okay, whoa, like I'm definitely not an expert, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just here for a resource for you. And no question is stupid. You know, in, in the 16 years that I've been doing this, I've yet to be asked a weird, awkward or embarrassing question. Even though wow. people promise me that they're going to ask me those kinds of questions, you know, they <laughs> put their hand up and they're like, this is a super weird question. And I was like, I'm like, just ask it, right? Mm-hmm. Because as soon as you ask it, it's not weird anymore. It's it's only weird when it's here, right? Yeah. You're, it's only weird when we keep it, when we hold on to it. And I think yeah. that's one of the things with sexuality, you know, like we, we are not given permission to seek this information in really comfortable ways. And then we hold on to it. And when you hold on to something, it gets weird. Yeah. Well, that's how like shame and stigma like keeps perpetuating itself, because if you hold it in your mind and you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm so weird. No one's ever like thought or felt this before. I'm like, I I bet you if you have had this thought, I am sure there are so many other people who who want to know the answer. have had this thought before. Right. Absolutely. It's creating community. And when I go into a classroom, we are a temporary or, you know, a community agency because I don't just work with classrooms, but we are a temporary community. Mm-hmm. And, and it is like sometimes I step back and think like it is quite a lot of pressure to talk about something so personal in temporary community. Absolutely. Well, I think that's what I've found so valuable about our ongoing work together, because two things I don't want to touch on about how you're talking about holding space. And I think that's something that I've really tried to do as well, like trying to take away like that expert title on things. Mm-hmm. And basically, I model myself after you. That's that's the honest <laughs> of just trying to be a, a facilitator of being like, you know, I have immense privilege, and I have access to all of this knowledge. And I want to be able to use that in a way that's going to be helpful to who's in the room or who I'm zooming with or whichever to say, what information do you want to know? And let me help guide you to that information. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's such a more more helpful place to come from instead of that mm-hmm. top down, like knowledge. Yeah. And I think especially because people haven't always been given a lot of space for discovery and, and experimentation around sexuality that mm-hmm. is free of judgment or shame. And that it, you know, has been very heteronormative, cisgender, you know, colonized view of mm-hmm. of sexuality. And, and so, yeah, just like creating that space, like we can talk about whatever, wherever you're at. And, and I always think it's, you know, it's always so fascinating when you bring people together because they're coming to you from so many different places, good, mm-hmm. bad, halfway in between, interest, not interest, passion, you know, whether their cat threw up that day. I mean, there's just so many things that are like they're bringing, right? And, yeah. And trying to then like meet them where they're at. Um, and, you know, I'm just so humbled by the people that I work with because, mm-hmm. you know, they show up and, yeah. and like they're engaged and they're like so brave and like courageous, you know, whether they share something that's super personal or they just sit in the space and stay with you. Yeah. Because that even is a form of engagement itself. Mm-hmm. And something my supervisor, he like always said, when you're facilitating a drama workshop and you have some people who are going to be really engaged and active in what's mm-hmm. happening and others who are kind of sitting on the sidelines and are taking it in. But he always says, don't discount the drama within. Like what what's happening in your mind? What's happening in your body right now? Because that's mm-hmm. just as effective learning because you aren't the one who's 
sharing your voice or taking up space in that room, mm-hmm. you're, you can still be just as engaged in that process. Mm-hmm. But it, yeah. I think it makes it harder when you move on to a digital platform, you're moving online. And normally, if I'm in a room of people, and I only have like three or four that are really actively like speaking, but I can still mm-hmm. get the temperature of everyone else in the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's like, that's the other thing is, you know, you never it's like the ripple effect, right? You never mm-hmm. know how it, it's being received and, and what a catalyst for insight or change or affirmation it's going to be. I think you just, you know, you put it out there with the intention of maybe it's useful for someone now, maybe it's useful for someone in 10 years, maybe it just helps them understand, I don't know, sex education better, like on mm-hmm. Netflix. Like, you know, yeah, like, exactly. Maybe they've even just like opened the door a little bit of being mm-hmm. like, oh, maybe next time when I have this conversation, maybe mm-hmm. I will ask that question mm-hmm. because this seemed to be okay. And so mm-hmm. I think just like, laying the path. I think for for all educators, you're like, okay, so if I can hold space, then hopefully the next person you go to can also do that and they can can learn together in different ways. Yeah. And I think then the work that we've done together, I mean, I've just seen you role model that comfort so well, you know, in comparison to people who joined our drama production and were like, Mm -hmm. I've never had any experience with this. I don't really even know why I'm here. Yeah. You're like, it's sex and drama. Like, how did I end up in this room? There's something that I'm kind of interested in and then watching them just develop and flourish. Like, mm-hmm. it's like they, you know, we just need an outlet. You just need a space to be right. You just need a community to, to grow and experience things. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really quite fascinating. It is. Well, that's actually a great transition. Cause I know I get lots of questions. People are like, Leah, what do you do? Like, what what the heck do you do? I'm like, well, I do a lot of things with lots of people. But I think what was great and kind of for, for context for listeners is when I first started and I approached you, Jennifer, I was the end of my undergrad and had this crazy idea that I was like, you know, I think youth and older adults, they might have a lot in common in terms of sex. And I don't know what they're going to say about it, but maybe we should create some theater about it. And once we had them all in the room together, and when we had, you know, working at the local high school, working with a local group of older adult actors, it was amazing seeing their connections in the room and realizing that their sexuality had just been been pigeonholed for so long because they aren't in that age range between 20 and 50 where we're like, oh, it's socially acceptable for you to be a sexual being. But if you're younger than that or older than that, we don't want to hear about it. And it's like gross or it's promiscuous or whichever and it's all these labels attached to it yeah and i think it was really nice when we moved into the next iteration when we were at island sexual health i think we got to delve a lot more deeply into well you know why does that stigma exist and how can we model a world that we want to see you know a grandmother who has a really open conversation with her granddaughter about her sexual orientation Mm -hmm. you know and so what has been like your experience? I mean, like how much experience did you have with theater going into this and then going down the line? Like, did you imagine it would become what it has? No, not at all. I think I like with theater. No, I, I, in my undergrad, I, at UVic, I took, I think two theater courses and that was really it. It was really limited. And so when you came to me and I was like, like, I don't know, like, I don't know nothing about theater. And then I'm like, oh, but you have that expertise. That's awesome. And then I have the sexual health. I only have to do this, like mm-hmm. this piece of it. And it literally 
I think it's revolutionary, to be honest. I mean, I oh. know we use, you know, theater for social justice and, you know, all different kinds of lenses and focuses, but with sexuality, especially intergenerational, it, it's incredibly powerful, but I think it's also enabling. Like, it creates mm. a space in when you can look at those intergenerational similarities and differences that creates that safety and that community to be able right. to do that. That where else would that happen? Like, can you imagine like throwing up a poster and being like, come to a conversation about intergenerational sexuality. Like you would get people who are already engaged in that, who saw themselves there, who are comfortable there. Mm -hmm. But what the theater does is it provides space for people who wouldn't necessarily see themselves reflected ahead of time on the poster, but then get there and they're like, oh yeah, here I am, or here my grandson is. And I think especially like when we talk about seniors, a lot of a lot of touch that they have is medically necessary, mm-hmm. right? Like, or like for stability or mobility if someone's helping them walk. But how often do they just have loving touch? Yeah. The difference between that, that clinical, like, you know, I'm, I'm helping you and it's, you know, it's almost like treating your body like a, like a tool or something to be fixed. And it's Mm -hmm. not a caress or anything that's Mm -hmm. so much more emotionally evocative. Mm -hmm. And what I love too is when, um, when we were facilitating conversations. So after we would do our performance and then we would have our follow up workshop with audience members, which I, for me was one of my favorite parts because people would just, discuss and open up and you were there to answer questions with like this your great great wealth of knowledge and what i found great is how you frame aging as like you know, there's so many more people who are aging with vitality and mm-hmm. how how do we look at vitality is something that we can foster throughout our lives right and i think when we talk about sexuality as you know i think often we look at it like those first three letters mm-hmm. and then people get you know uncomfortable And when we talk about like youth, they get uncomfortable because they haven't had experiences yet, but they have lots of curiosities often or they've, you know, are taking what their parents are telling them with our older people. They're filtering it through experiences or, you know, narrow definitions, changing lifestyles. But if you look at that duality piece, that is like, that's the vitality. That's the Mm -hmm. life force in this. And I think that, you know, like you said earlier, when we talk about intergenerational, the young people are, you know, not looked and validated as sexual people often, mm-hmm. and neither are older people. And, you know, when I go in and work with youth, because most of my work, like I'd say about 75 to 80% of my work is with mm-hmm. youth. And when I talk to them about like our theater project and working with seniors, they're like, what? Old people having sex? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. And they're like, who wants to have sex with old people? And I'm like, well, usually other old people, but right? you know, if it's consensual and hot and that's what you're into, like, you know, let's affirm people. And they're like, yeah. oh, and it's just this reaction because they haven't been exposed to it before yeah. because we're not showcasing seniors as vital sexual beings. Like if, mm-hmm. if they were seeing that in more mainstream, it would be like, okay, right? And And that's what I think is so amazing about the work that you do and the drama is like, let's just blow the ends off that. And let's just talk about it as like this life affirming vital force that we get to define. I mean, how empowering is that? Absolutely. Well, and I think a part of it what we really wanted was that the stories and the ideas, they came from that group itself. So not from someone like me who's right in that demographic, like I'm yeah. I'm 28 years old. And so yeah. it was like, oh, how do we hold space to make sure the stories that you want to share 
are the ones that are at center stage. Like that's what we're actually hearing. And I think for our audience members, just seeing themselves reflected on stage, I think is, is really powerful. So that was part one of my conversation with Jennifer. And I can't wait to share part two with you in our next episode. Thank you so much for joining me today and listening to the Love Doctor podcast. If you want your questions to be answered on the show, send a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com. You can also check me out on Twitter or Instagram and send me a message. Let me know what are the things that you want covered on the show and I will do my darndest to get them on here. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.